you would have to be taught by the Spirit to appreciate the words of that third verse, send grief and pain. Right. Did you read those? Amen. Send grief and pain. Why would anyone ask for grief and pain? Because if those were the messengers sent by God to teach us to love Christ more, send them. Amen. Send them. Don't send the fatness and prosperity and pleasure of this society which has caused men to turn their backs on God, but send grief and pain if it would help us to love Jesus Christ more. Amen. Open your Bibles again to Romans, the 8th chapter. Romans chapter 8. And by the grace of God, let us warn ourselves of carnal Christianity and may His Spirit convict us to hate the thought of being a carnal Christian, Amen. but instead to be sold out, to be a spiritual Christian, to walk after the Spirit rather than the flesh. Right. Romans chapter 8. We've read it already this morning. For anyone listening by tape, I suggest you read verses 1 through 14 carefully to yourselves. If we want to comment briefly on them and then look further at our study this morning. We all can't claim to be Christians in this assembly. If you were filling out an application for some particular position or membership in some society and it asked if you were a Christian, I'm sure that all of you would mark the box yes. But what if there was a second box? Are you a spiritual Christian or a carnal Christian? What would you mark there? And then we should ask ourselves, what if it was the Lord Jesus Christ asking us? Before whom we could hide nothing, and who knows the very thoughts and intents of our heart. Are we spiritual Christians or are we carnal Christians? And I'll explain those terms. I'll explain them right now. To be a carnal Christian is one that takes the name of Christ, but still lives, walks, and thinks like all other men, like the world, and like your flesh. A spiritual Christian is a man who takes the name of Christ, who walks after the Spirit, bears the fruit of the Spirit, and looks different from all other men. And that's what we ought to be. I want to say something that sounds almost foolish, but I want to ask you a question. When was the last time you were accused of being a Jesus freak? That's what I mean. We ought to have the Lord Jesus Christ so much on our lips, so much in our walk, that they would think of us as a Jesus freak. Now, I'm not even sure what the words mean. They've been abused in our society over the last 30 years. But what we want to, what I'm trying to say by them is, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, ought to be the reason that we're alive. It ought to be the governing fact in our speech and our thoughts and our deeds. And do others see that? That's a spiritual Christian. Because Jesus Christ and all that is embodied in that statement is what's most important to us. Romans chapter 8. We so many times go to Romans chapter 8 because there's comfort in it. Everyone knows Romans 8.28, don't they? And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, 
to them who are the called according to his purpose? Everyone loves Romans 8.28. They want to claim Romans 8.28. They want Romans 8.28 to comfort them no matter what's happening in their lives. Everyone wants Romans 8.28. But if you're going to get to Romans 8.28, you better read Romans 1 and 4 and the rest of the 14 verses we read this morning. Because you can't claim Romans 8.28 unless you are walking after the Spirit and not after the flesh. Because the Apostle twice states that in the early verses here, warning us. It does indeed say in verse 1, there is therefore. That therefore is there for this reason. Because of Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul has just laid out that he knows within himself there is nothing good, it's everything evil, what he loves he can't do, what he hates he usually does. And who will save him from the body of that death? And he thanks Jesus Christ his Lord. And then he says there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. But what we want to see this morning is look at the second half of that verse. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That is a clause that limits the first half of the verse. No condemnation is only true of those who are walking after the Spirit rather than the flesh. If you were to read verses 2 and 3, you would have a description of how God delivered us from condemnation. It is the explanation of the first half of verse 1. All the way down through verse 4, the middle of verse 4, you have an explanation of the first half of verse 1, which is, how did God deliver us from condemnation, it was through the Lord Jesus Christ who condemned sin and fulfilled righteousness for us. All our sins have been paid for. All of his perfect righteousness have been applied to our account. Legally, we stand before God infinitely perfect, just like the Lord Jesus Christ. So much so, we're his brethren. Jesus Christ will one day own us as his brethren. Infinitely perfect, righteous, before the living God. However, that second half of verse 1 describes those, they walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. And then we have it again at the bottom of verse 4, and from then on, we have an explanation of that clause. Verse 5 says, For they that are after the flesh, and there's an elliptical word or two there missing, and that is walking. He's explaining walking after the flesh or walking after the Spirit. An elliptical expression means that it's left out, but you're to understand it. I'll show you. Look at verse 5. They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. What two words are elliptically left out, it's part of the English language, in the second half of verse 5? Do mind. Right. The first half, they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit do mind the things of the Spirit. Those words are to be understood. When we're walking after the flesh, we mind the things of the flesh. Our mind is occupied, concerned with the things of the flesh. The flesh is what our body wants. The flesh is what the world sells. The flesh is what Satan wants to tempt you to do. 
But when we walk after the Spirit, we mind or are occupied with or concerned with the things of the Spirit of God. What's the chief thing of the Spirit of God? Exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have the fruit of the Spirit. And then we have the Word of the Spirit. And we have the assembly of the Spirit, which is the house of the living God. Those spiritual things are what our mind is preoccupied with, occupied with, and concerned with when we're walking after the Spirit. Verse 5. But verse 6 tells us, But to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. If, you're, if you, as a child of God, let's assume that. And we can't if you're not walking after the Spirit. But when you are in the flesh, it is death. It's a practical death. Because you have no relationship with God, as it's going to go on to say, all you're doing is displeasing Him all the time. Right. The God that you claim to love, the God that you need to bless you, you're displeasing Him. Because to be carnally minded is death. For a Christian to be going through this life, living it carnally, worried about his body, making sure he gets to the spa six days a week, but not making sure he spends time in his private closet with the Word of God and prayer, that man is dead. And you know what? If he's a child of God, he knows it. He knows that he is unhappy, unfulfilled, miserable, and wondering what's wrong in his life. But for that same child of God to repent and to confess that wickedness and foolishness and to become minded, mindful of the things of the Spirit of God and to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ, it says it is life and peace. And this morning I want to say to you, if you're a carnal Christian, and I have as big of a temptation to be a carnal Christian as anyone, and I'm preaching this because I fear for our souls. I'm not preaching this because I know you like it. I'm not preaching this because I thought that you were thinking, I hope he preaches on carnal Christianity this morning. I'm preaching it because I fear for your souls and mine. I'm as tempted to that as anyone. Life and peace is the result of following the things of the Spirit of God. If you are a carnal Christian this morning, and this past week you have been more occupied with the things of your body, the things of this world, than with the things of the Lord, you are in a state of death. And for me to describe that there is life and peace for the taking, if you will repent and confess, you're going to deny it inside. The carnal man will not let you believe it, because you've given him authority in your life, by submitting to him. He's going to say that life is boring. Do you believe this? How did this world get here? This Bible tells me that God created the heavens and the earth in six days by his spoken word, and he created all things that you can see out of things that can't be seen, out of nothing. He said it, I believe it, that settles it. And I think we all believe that about creation. But do you believe it about what I just said? If you repent of your worldliness, if you repent of your concern about the things of the flesh, and you choose to pursue the things of the Spirit, you will have life and peace. But your flesh will not agree with that. Your flesh will say, that just sounds like 
boredom. I'm just not one of those holy rollers. I'm not a Jesus freak. I just want to be a good, worldly businessman who's also a Christian. The Bible does not know of such a thing in that order. You have to forsake all of that. There can be no ambition in your heart and mind except to serve the Lord Christ. That's a spiritually minded Christian. But if you've been playing with that, and you spend a lot of your time trying to perfect your body in a, in a health spa, or build your profession, or secure your family, or all the other things we get occupied with, hobbies and toys, then you're going to say, if I was to seek the Lord first in my life, I'd be bored. Well, the Bible says you're wrong. The Corinthian church was a carnal church. You can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and Paul will say, you're carnal. And how does he know they're carnal? Because they were fighting. Right. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, they had ministerial preferences among their members. And they had these party lines drawn that some were of Apollos and some liked Peter better, some liked Paul. And some said, well, those three are men. We follow Christ. And so they had four divisions in there and they were squabbling all the time. And what does the Apostle Paul say about them? You're babes. You're carnal. He says it three times in three verses. You're carnal. I'm defining the word carnal for you. Right. It means to be fighting. Because that's what worldly people do. The saints of God ought not to fight. Except our flesh. Right. We shouldn't be fighting one another. Our great enemy, brethren, is nothing outside there. It's not Joseph Smith and the Mormons. It's not Charles Taze Russell, Judge Rutherford, and the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's not Putin and the revival of the Soviet Union. It's not Red China. It's not big government. It's not Bill Clinton. It's not whoever's elected, and it's not the New World Order. Our biggest enemy is our flesh. Amen. And when we try to take the name of Christ and yet please the flesh, we're carnal Christians. And I'm going to show you what God thinks of carnal Christians. He can't stand them. And therefore, as his representative to you, we shouldn't stand them. He hates it. And we want to be rid of it. Brethren, let me, let me describe a spiritually minded person. They're a person of prayer. You've heard this before, but you're going to hear it again. You can measure your spirituality by your prayer life. When the Apostle Paul was converted, and I, you've heard this before, but I want to give it to you again. God appeared to Ananias in a dream and said, Saul of Tarsus needs to be baptized. Ananias said, wait a minute. I don't want to be the one that baptizes Saul of Tarsus. Don't you know that he's been killing Christians left and right in Jerusalem? And he has authority from the chief priest to go do the same thing in Damascus. And the Lord said, go. Ananias went and the Lord said, here's how you're going to find him. Behold, he prayeth. Amen. Acts 9, verse 11. You can measure your spirituality by your prayer life. Don't we all know that? Don't we know that when we start to let the world in, whether it's television or your reading or your carnal activities or your thought life, guess what goes out the back door? Prayer. When you are walking with the Lord closely rejoicing in his salvation. What are you doing freely, naturally, and you'll want to do it? You're praying. Right. It is a barometer 
of your spiritual life. I read over in Acts chapter 10 that Cornelius, when God wants to picture to us that Cornelius was a righteous man needing the gospel, what does he tell us about him? He prayed to God. How often? Always. Acts chapter 10. Amazing. That's what we ought to be doing. Because you know why we ought to be doing it? Because the Bible tells us to do it. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. Pray without ceasing, the Bible tells us. A spiritually minded person is a singing person. Because the Bible says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. Ephesians 5.18 But be filled with the Spirit. And that verse doesn't end with a period because verse 19 goes on to say, speaking and singing to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. If you are truly following the Lord Jesus Christ and you're a spiritually minded Christian, you'll be a singing person. You say, I wasn't given a voice to sing. I just don't like to sing that much. We'll take that up with the Lord in a few years. He already said it. I didn't say it. I'm just here as his ambassador to tell you what he said. He said that when someone's filled with the Spirit, there is an involuntary reaction. They want to praise the Lord Jesus Christ. They want to sing of his love. and They want to sing of his grace. And so don't give me excuses. Just humble yourself, confess, repent, and do it. We ought to be singing people. And if you're filled with the Spirit, you will be a singing person. A spiritually minded person delights in the Lord. Do you, do you love to delight in the Lord God? I mean to delight in Him. Jeremiah chapter 9 says that the men of this world glory in riches, wisdom, and strength. Now that's pretty good, isn't it? Did that nail down the 20th century and the 21st century pretty well? Yep. Riches. Don't we all love to read about Bill Gates? Why is Forbes and Fortune and other magazines so popular? Why are the lifestyles of the rich and famous so important? Because men love to glory in riches. They love to glory in wisdom. We have a country addicted and obsessed with the idolatry of education. They think that it's the panacea of all ills. It's the opium of the people. To educate everyone more and more will get better and better. Well, God didn't say that. So men glory in education. Then there's strength. They glory in their athletic endeavors. And they get excited. In all three of those categories, the amount of money spent, the amount of time invested, and the rejoicing and loud noises that people make about those three things are great. But the Lord says in Jeremiah chapter 9, 23 and 24, don't glory in those things. Glory in the fact that you know me and that you understand me. Why don't we get as excited about knowing the Lord as we do an athletic contest? Why don't we get as excited about the Lord's salvation as we do an unusually large promotion in our profession? Is that sick? A promotion on the job. What gesture could I possibly make to adequately reflect a promotion on the job compared to the Lord Jesus Christ promoting us from eternal condemnation in hell to be the sons of God in heaven forever. Something's wrong. And I'll tell you what it is. It's the flesh that we're all carrying around. But what we want to do is we want to put it to death. 
And a spiritual person loves to delight in the Lord God himself. A spiritually minded person talks about the Lord with others. Look at Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. There's verses for all the points I've given. There'll be an outline available with every verse that I'll use in this sermon. But I hope that you can follow with me and think with me and and let the Spirit of God convict your heart that we need to be spiritually minded Christians. But a spiritually minded Christian talks about the Lord to other people. As a pastor, I cringe hearing some of the conversations after our services. There's a time and a place to talk about everything. But the subject that we should want to talk about the most, and that gets the most, the majority of our time, is the Lord Himself. And His blessings, and His Word, and His church, and the hope that He's given us. And to hear all the other conversations going on that are talking about nothing, and less than nothing, we should be in love with the Lord and talking about Him. And I want to show you what the Lord says about it. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. Right there at the end of your Old Testaments. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to make a difference between carnal Christians and spiritual Christians. The spiritual Christians are going to be the jewels in that day, and the carnal Christians he is going to judge, and we'll know who's been serving the Lord and who hasn't. And yes, I know what this is applying primarily to. This is applying primarily to the nation of Israel and the destruction that came upon that nation. But you know our nation deserves it also. I want to be in that number and I want to be written in the book of God. Isn't that great? A spiritually minded person loves God's word. Job said in Job 23 and verse 12, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Do you know what you do at least three times a day in this country? And if we include snacks, it's more than that. You make sure you feed your body. And Job said, I esteem the words of his mouth equal, no, more than my necessary food. We always take time to eat. We always spend money to eat. We will go out of our way. We'll drive. We'll buy. We'll plan ahead. Just think of what we do to make sure we eat on time and the right things. But Job said God's word was more important. We're coming up short, aren't we, brethren? There isn't any hope. There isn't any reason to despair. Do you know what there's reason to do? Repent, confess, and commit. There's no reason to despair. Just thank God you're hearing it. Thank God that at least... You feel like despair. That's a good sign. And then choose to repent and to confess it. And let's seek the Lord more than we have in the past. Let's do better tomorrow than we did today. And on Tuesday, let's do better than Monday. 
by His grace. A spiritually minded person loves the Word of God. Didn't David say in Psalm 19 in one verse, didn't he get this out in one verse, the 10th verse, that God's Word was more to him than thousands of gold and silver and sweeter than the honeycomb. Not only was it valuable, but it was precious to his taste. He loved the Word of God, and it should be to us. A spiritually minded person loves fellowship with the saints. You go into the book of Acts and see where God changes men's lives. They want to be with one another. They don't want to be, they don't want to have great distinctions in wealth among themselves. They're willing to sell and give to others because all of a sudden they don't care about themselves. They care about the other saints because God would reason this way in 1 John 5, 1. If you've been born of God and you claim to love God, then you're going to love those that are born of God. How can you love God the Father if you don't love God the Father's children? That makes sense to me. I hope it makes sense to you. The question, have we been carnal Christians or spiritually minded Christians? Jesus Christ knows your life from beginning to end. He knows what you think in your bed. He knows what you talk about in your bed or daydream about in your bed or nightdream about in your bed. He knows how you spend your time, how much you read, how much you pray, how much time you spend with the saints, how much you care about them, how much you love God's Word, and whether you delight in Him or talk about Him to others. He knows all that. Are you a spiritual Christian or a carnal Christian? Am I a spiritual Christian or a carnal Christian? We have to examine ourselves. Second Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3. Men love Bible prophecy, but they don't like this Bible prophecy. Do you know I've never been to a prophecy seminar on this, this prophecy? And I don't know why. They all want to go into prophecies where they don't know what they're talking about, where they can speculate, and no one in the audience can call them in question. And everyone else can just sit there and speculate along with them, and everybody can go home feeling good that they've speculated together about something in the future. But how about something in the present that's rather condemning? Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. This is a prophecy. Why don't men get excited about this prophecy? Because it condemns us. Right. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. I know I've preached this to you before. But since I've preached it to you before, and I still see reason for concern, I must not have preached it well enough. So will you let me preach it again? Just a little bit? Perilous times. Why does God call these perilous times? Now I read about the Apostle Paul that he was in perils of robbers. I can understand the word peril being associated with robbers. He says he was in perils in the sea. I can understand having a... I've been there before, not even a sea, but just a big lake. Lake Huron around Michigan. In a capsized racing yacht. But anyway, that's, that's another point. Paul said he was in perils of the water. And when you're thrown out of a ship in a storm in the Mediterranean Sea, you're in danger. And he uses that word right here. That in the last days, dangerous, fearful, frightening times are going to come. 
perilous times, and they're described this way. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. And isn't that our biggest problem in this world? Amen. We love ourselves too much. The entire world out there is teaching that in order for the earth to get better, we all need to love ourselves more. Jesus said the opposite of that. Right. We love ourselves too much. And we need to learn to love others like we love ourselves. If we ever treated others like we treat ourselves and loved others like we love ourselves, we'd be the world's greatest lover. Because we automatically love ourselves. That's part of our nature. Whitney Houston comes along and sings the greatest love of all. And what does little Whitney say the greatest love of all is? The love of self. What blasphemy. Can I think of a few loves that are greater than that? How about the love of God for his enemies? Right. How about our love for God? Right. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. Covetous. Doesn't that describe our greedy nation? Boasters. Doesn't that describe our talking nation? Proud. Blasphemers. Disobedient to parents. Does that describe it? Our present situation in this world. The United States of America in the year 2000. Unthankful. Unholy. It's without natural affection. Truce breakers. False accusers. Incontinent which is to be undisciplined, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded. Does that describe us? That is a perfect fulfillment. That was written 2,000 years ago, and that describes United States of America in the year 2000, right there. And Paul said, that is perilous. Perilous! So whatever you would think, if you were at gunpoint of a robber, or whatever you would think, being in the Mediterranean Sea in the midst of a storm without a ship, apply that same degree of fear and danger to these things, because they are making an assault on our Christianity. Right. Notice there's nothing in there about communism, or the, one, or the New World Order, or big government, or anything like that. Nothing about the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's all about carnal threats to our Christianity. And then he goes and says, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. That is America. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Now I want to emphasize that verse right there, verse 5. Having a form of godliness. Religious. Religious indeed. And see, I don't, I'm not preaching to those out there. I'm preaching to you and to me. We came here this morning. Does that prove anything? All it proves is that at least we have a form of religion. We have a form of godliness. It does prove something. That at least we have the form because we did assemble. The Bible tells us to assemble. And I believe that most everyone was singing. So that was a form of godliness because it is godly to sing. And I think every head was bowed. And hopefully most of you were praying with those that led prayer this morning. So that's a form of godliness because it is godly to pray. But is that all we have? Having a form of godliness, outward ritual, outward motions, showing some religion. 
but denying the power thereof. That word power, I want you to understand your Bibles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5, when it says, The husband hath not power of his own body but the wife, and the wife hath not power of her own body but the husband, it doesn't mean that she can't raise herself up and get out of bed. It means she doesn't have the right or authority to her own body. He does. And he doesn't have the right or authority to his own body. She does. And so when we have that word power right here, Paul's using it the very same way. We have a form of religion, but we deny the right or the authority of God to dictate the details of our lives. We come in on Sunday, we go through the motions, but we go home and live the way we choose because we deny the power of that God to dictate the terms of our lives. That's what that verse means. And that is the description of carnal Christianity in America. And I don't want it to be the description of carnal Christianity in the Greenville Assembly of Saints. I don't want it to describe me. I don't want it to describe you. I fear for you. I fear for me. We've got to examine ourselves. Is that true of us at all? And do you know what the apostle then says? From such, turn away. Anyone that's like that, that has a form of religion, but denies the right and authority of God to dictate the terms of their lives, from such turn away. This does not mean that people have a religion, but they deny that God has power. There is no such religion. All religions admit that God has power. I hope you understand what this verse is saying. All you have to do to know this for certain is to read all the things in verses 2 and 3, for those are things that God has already condemned. But men are like that, yet they go to church on Sunday showing a form of godliness, but they will not let God condemn all those things in verses 2 and 3. How many pulpits today will be preaching the virtues of self-love? And the first indictment of a perilous time is men being lovers of their own selves. Incredible. Brethren, let's stick with the Word of God. This is a warning to us. And I want to give you this warning. Did you know the Apostle James said, if you're a friend of the world, you're the enemy of God? That's what I'm talking about. We can't be a friend of both. I know you'd like to compromise it. I'd like to compromise it too. Could we be a friend of God and the world? Can we pursue riches and success on the job and a huge house and all the earthly things that we want and serve God? Can't do it. Jesus said you cannot serve God and mammon. No man can serve two masters. For you're either going to love the one and hate the other or hold to the one and despise the other. We've got to be sold out to one master and it better be the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot be a friend of the world if you are, you're the enemy of God. In order to be the friend of God, you're going to have to be the enemy of the world. And until you hate the world, you're not making progress in being the friend of God because God hates this present evil world. Right. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. I would expect that half of you could quote where we're going. I would hope. It doesn't matter. We need to go there again. Revelation chapter 2, this is a warning. 
the, the church at Ephesus is being addressed by the Lord Jesus Christ in the first few verses of chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. And he commends them for many things that are listed in verse 2 and 3. But he says in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. When you leave your first love, I can tell you what you are. You're a carnal Christian. A spiritually minded Christian is still holding to his first love. How do you get it back? He says, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. How do you get it back? Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. First thing you've got to do is realize that you've fallen. Remember that you have fallen from what you used to be. And repent and do the first works. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Remember that you don't have the zeal in your heart that maybe you once did. And maybe you've never had it and you should have it. Therefore, you won't be able to remember anything. But if you can't remember anything, then just hear me. Remember... Repent, repent from not giving God his proper place of your first love and do the first works. This is true of any relationship where you want to have to get first love back. It's to do the first works. You don't wait for the feelings in order to give to a person. Someone will say, well, I don't love my spouse anymore. Well, what are you going to do, sit around and wait for that love to come back? It's never going to come back. The bitterness in your heart that would even cause you to say that in the first place, is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger until it chokes out everything else possible. The way to get it back, just like it is with the Lord, is to do the first works. Now that is so simple. Do you know what you did when you were first dating your spouse? You couldn't, you couldn't wake up and make it through the day and go to bed at night without them preoccupying all of your thoughts. You would, think of, up, you would think of creative things to do, to take care of them, to honor them, to pamper them. Those are the first works. And if you do those toward anyone, feelings will return. If you sit around waiting for feelings, they'll never come back. And what does the Lord want? He says, do the first works. Now, I think there's a lot of wisdom in the Word of God. Amen. You want to have that first love back for the Lord Jesus Christ? Then go do the first works of what you did for Him, and you'll have that love for Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 says that because you are neither hot nor cold, Jesus Christ is going to spit, spew, vomit the church of the Laodiceans out of his mouth because he would rather have us hot or cold. A spiritual Christian is a hot Christian. A pagan is a cold one. A pagan doesn't have any heat at all. What do we have there in the middle? The thing God hates the most. Do you know that a pagan that's living for himself, listen, they're consistent and God respects them. Someone out there this morning that hasn't even, God hasn't crossed his mind in two and a half years since he had to go to a funeral and he was scared to death that there might be a God, but since then he hasn't thought about him in two and a half years, God respects that man. He's out filling his belly this today. He hasn't even thought that there's a, Wade doesn't even know what the word worship means. He doesn't care. He's living for himself. His, his God is his belly, as the Bible says. It's his idol. He worships himself in pleasure. God respects that man. According to this text, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 15, I would thou wert cold or hot. 
But those that are in the middle category of being lukewarm, those are those that say they're Christ, but don't live all out for Him. And they play with the world and their flesh. They're carnal Christians. They're the ones God hates. We should either live for the Lord all out, or we should get up right now, ignore the shame of walking out of this assembly, and go out there and live for your belly. God will have more respect for you. He's going to spew the lukewarm Christians, the carnal Christians, out of his mouth. May God have mercy on us. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul was not politically correct. He didn't care. Being condemned as not being politically correct wouldn't have bothered him. Here's what he concludes 1 Corinthians 16 with. Verse 22. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. The Apostle Paul curses anyone who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ by saying, let him be cursed and judged at the coming of the Lord. Now I want to make a point out of this verse. It doesn't say, if any man doesn't know about Jesus Christ. If it said, if any man doesn't know about Jesus Christ, all of you could comfort yourselves saying, well, we know about him because you all know about him. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, if any man know the Lord Jesus Christ, because I hope that all of you know him. Do you know what it says? It gets right down to our commitment and our souls and our affection and our emotions and our zeal. It says, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. It is not whether you don't know about him. And see, it's easy for us to take comfort that we know about Jesus Christ. We know about him, and so we comfort ourselves, and that's a form of godliness. But what the Lord wants is the commitment and the giving of our souls, which is love. Love is giving of our souls. And that's what he wants. And look at this verse. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, he is under the judgment and curse of God at the coming of the Lord. That is a sober, sober verse. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and love him today. Repent, confess, and do the first works. And this verse can be a verse of comfort. Because you'll love this verse. Because if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, then you love him taking vengeance on all his enemies at his coming. Satan, the world, and your flesh are, com- are all working together in the world's great conspiracy. I do believe in conspiratorial theory, and that is that Satan, the world, and your flesh are all working together. They have no disagreements whatsoever. They're all working together in a united front to pull you down from spiritual Christianity to carnal Christianity. Amen. That's the conspiracy that we need to worry about and fight and oppose. Right. And that's what I'm trying to preach against this morning. Did it ever... Were those three things working in the days of Israel of old? In the book of Judges, what did Israel do? Up and down. God would deliver them, bless them, they would praise the Lord, and then a few years later, they're chasing after some god of the Canaanites, and the Lord's judging them. Up and down, back and forth. Then they're being oppressed by an enemy. They cry unto the Lord. The Lord delivers them. They get serious about their religion for a little while, and there they go again. 
And isn't that the case of your soul? Why do you think we have the book of Judges? Because though the same three forces that were in effect then and their person... Listen, Satan is not a mere force. He is a person with incredible intelligence who as a roaring lion is walking about seeking whom he may devour and the world is working right along with him with some pretty good intelligence of their own and your flesh is oh so wise in its deceitful nature. The Bible would say the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The three of them together will pull you down just like they pulled the Israel down of old. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is what happens. This is the problem. Brethren, if the Lord Jesus Christ is only happy with us, when we are, ha- when we are loving Him with our first love, when we are hot for Him, when we are a praying people, singing people, talking people, reading people, meditating people, and loving people, if He's only happy when we're that way, then He's unhappy with us a lot of the time, isn't He? Because there is a warfare going on to keep us from those things. I can read in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14, I believe, where Paul commended a man named Demas as being a great fellow helper of his. But here in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, I read that Demas hath forsaken me. If you would have been invited by the Apostle Paul to accompany him to Rome, where he was going to testify before Caesar, would you have been against Caesar because I just know Paul. He's not politically correct. He's going to say something about Caesar that he shouldn't say. He's going to probably bring up something about hell and I just don't want to see Caesar's face when Paul starts preaching about hell and that Caesar's on his way there. And then Demas starts thinking about how good he had it back there in some other place. And he left Paul and Paul tells us why because he loved this present world. Now, I, I believe when Jesus Christ said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God, there is not a single combination of letters of the English language in this Bible that is not important. Every single word. Right. And do you know how it describes the world that Demas left Paul for? Present. He loved this present world. How long did Demas have with this present world? What do you want to speculate? You want to speculate he was 45 years old when he was with Paul? Do you want to speculate that he lived to be 75 so that he had 30 more years in this present world? How many years did he have in the world to come? This present world? What is in this present world that should attract us compared to the glory of the world that's to be revealed to us? But Demas forsook Paul for it because he Loved it. He loved it. Lo- what, did, what did John teach us in 1 John 2.15? Love not the world. Right. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot love them both. If you love one, you will hate the other. That's what happened to Demas. What are you living for? What's going to preoccupy your time this next week? What have you been thinking about while I'm preaching? If you've been thinking about your job or your wife, or some girlfriend, or some car, or some motorcycle, or some activity, or some hobby, or weightlifting, or changing your body, or if you can lose another two pounds, you're going to be proud of yourself. You're a fool. 
I'm a fool. What are you living for? Toys? Your marriage? Children? I see 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I would that those that are married be as though they were not married. You've got to keep even your marriage in its proper place so that Jesus Christ is first. What are you living for? Your body? Are you going to make sure you work out six days this next week? Work? Are you going to go to work five or six days this next week? Are you, are you living for money? What, are you, what do you mind? Remember Romans 8. What do you mind? What is your mind preoccupied with? What is your mind thinking about? What is your mind distracted with? That is what you are. Because if you are spiritually minded, then you're a son of God. Then you are walking after the spirit rather than after the flesh. What is your mind thinking about? Shopping? Health? Sports? A combination of all these. Do you know what the Bible says these three things act like in our lives? It describes Satan and the world and our flesh coming together as leaven. If you have a huge tub of dough and you take a small amount of leaven or yeast, as we call it today, and put it in that dough, does it affect the whole lump? Yes, it does. If you let a little of car- little carnality, carnality is things of the world, things of other men, things of your flesh into your life, it will affect the whole lump. That little bit will not be content to stay in one part of the lump. It will go and infect the whole lump until it's infected your whole being. The Bible also describes it as weeds in the parable of the sower. That the seed is sown, that the plants spring up with joy at hearing the gospel, and then the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches come up like weeds And those weeds slowly choke the life out of that plant. Slowly, small beginnings, but sure in the finality of their destruction of the Christian life. It's also described as a cancer. These are Bible words, not mine. Bible words. Leaven, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And for the the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke it out so that it doesn't bear any fruit. And then cancer. A little bit of cancer in one part of your body? What What do our medical professionals know ought to be done? Cut it out and cut it out now. Because it will continue to grow and consume your whole body. How many times have you heard these words? They opened up. My great uncle Joe, he had stomach cancer, but when they opened him up, the cancer was everywhere. They closed him back up and said there's no hope. That's cancer. That is sin. That is our flesh. If we're to be spiritually minded, we want to be singing and praying and thinking about the Lord and talking about the Lord and with the Lord's people all the time. So if there isn't that stuff creeping in, we don't have the flesh and sin creeping in. It ought to be crushed into oblivion. Yes, we've got to go to work 
It's not wrong to work out. Just remember that it has very little profit. But exercising yourself unto godliness has lots of profit. The Lord's going to judge His people. I read to you Hebrews chapter 10 last week that says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's a God that's not preached anymore. The God that men want to hear about today is that He loves everyone indiscriminately and completely and unconditionally. Hogwash. That isn't biblical. Loves all men equally, completely, and unconditionally. You can't find that in a Bible. He's going to judge his people. Where it says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Right. Do you know what that's describing? The Lord shall judge his people. Amen. That's in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 30 and 31. And in 70 AD, he judged his people Israel, and he obliterated them. He wiped out the nation of Israel. And the armies under Titus, who became Caesar later, took a plow across the top of Mount Zion and left that city in total shambles and killed over one million people and took 90,000 prisoners to put in the salt mines of Egypt and to drag a few through the streets of Rome as the tokens of his great victory. God shall judge his people. And brethren, we are the people of the new covenant, Jews and Gentiles alike, who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and are the true seed of Abraham. And we shall be judged. And he is going to judge carnal Christians. He is going to make show a difference someday between those that worship God and those that don't. And a form of godliness isn't going to get you anywhere. What's going to get you somewhere, as an evidence that you're a true son of God and his blessing, is to walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. Judgments to begin at the house of God, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. And Peter would say, if judgment begins at us, what in the world's going to happen to the wicked? But it begins... With the house of God. How does God judge carnal Christians? He'll give you your heart's desire. You want business success? Is that more important to you than serving the Lord Jesus Christ? He very well may give that to you. But he'll send leanness into your soul. Right. Psalm 106, verse 15. <clears throat> you want a happy family? He may give you a happy family. And if that's what you want... He may give you a happy family, but he'll send leanness into your soul. Israel wanted quail. He gave them quail four feet deep all the way around Israel as far as you could walk in any direction. But he sent leanness into their souls. Your prayers will be hindered. It's something as, as simple as not having a relationship with your wife that is pleasing to God. Your prayers will be hindered according to 1 Peter 3 and 7. Evangelism dies. There's no evangelistic power in spreading the gospel of Christ when you're, it's a church that's carnal. And there is no power in our faith. The power in answered prayer. The power in victory over sin. The power in singing praise the Lord and knowing He's walking with us and with us. The power of having the place shaken by the presence of God doesn't happen for a carnal congregation. And then, of course, it could be like Corinth. Many were weak. Many were sick. And many slept. That means they had died. The Lord will take a physical life of a carnal Christian. What's the cure? We read it. Revelation chapter 2. Re remember? Right. Repent and do the first works. I think that's pretty simple. 
And I hope today that you'll repent. And wherever you have let the world creep in, your flesh creep into your life, that you'll stomp it back out. Don't walk out of here and just say, well, we heard a good sermon. The pastor sure is trying to warn us. That isn't enough. What are you going to do about it? Leave this place, remember, repent, and do the first works. Pluck out and cut off everything in your life that has the appearance of evil or worldliness. We all know things that are taking us away. Cut them off. A hobby, an activity, too many hours at the job, a friendship, a magazine, a website, whatever is stealing your soul and causing you to have flesh in your life, cut it out. No matter if it's as valuable as your eye, the Savior would say, pluck it out. No matter it's as practical as your right hand, cut it off in order to be a spiritually minded Christian. 1 Timothy 4 says, Bodily exercise profiteth little, but it says that exercising thyself unto godliness rather is what we ought to be doing. What is exercise? Think with me. In 1 Peter 4, it says bodily exercise profiteth little, but it says exercise in the godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that life which is to come. I'd say that exercise in the godliness is pretty important. Amen. What is exercise? Repetition of basic movements in order to promote growth. Did I miss something? Those of you that go to the spa for bodily exercise, what is it? Isn't it repetition of basic physical movements in order to promote growth and strength? What spiritual exercise or exercise in a godliness? Repetition of basic movements in order to promote spiritual growth. What are the basic movements of a Christian? Haven't we been there before? This morning already? Prayer. Reading. Singing. Talking to others. Delighting in the Lord. You say, well, what if I don't feel like it? Well, then come back tonight because you're going to get a sermon tonight entitled, Faith or Feelings? All the choices that we make in life are based on one of two things. Faith or feelings. You don't feel like praying? What should you do? Should you wait until you feel like praying? Or should you pray? Do you know what? I'll, I'll dare you. I'll dare you that if you get down on your knees and pray to God and beg Him for mercy and pray with a sincere heart, before you finish, you'll have feelings for prayer. Amen. If you wait around for feelings for prayer, I'll pray when I feel like it, you'll never pray. Until the Lord's hand of judgment is already descending over you, then you might because you're in fear. And do you know what he says then when you pray? I will laugh at your calamity. That's what the Bible says. Exercise thyself unto godliness. Prayer, confession, reading, singing, talking to others, delighting in the Lord. Set your affection on things above. Do you know that your love is your choice? Our society teaches us that it's something out of your control. You know, some, a man walks into a room, a woman walks into a room, and for some reason, known only to the stars, they have this incredible attraction toward each other. That isn't love. That's lust. 
I've had it many times, haven't you? Well, I'm honest. Are you going to be honest? We all know what that is. It's lust. Love is something you choose to set somewhere. And do you know what the Bible says? Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. It is a choice. Set your affection on things above. What do you love? It's a song, isn't it? What do you love? Choose to love the things that are above. Jesus Christ is above. The Spirit of God is above. Heaven is above. Truth is above. Set your affection on it, not on things on the earth. Don't set your affection on cars, motorcycles, jobs, professions, promotions, a family, a house. Don't set it there. Set it on things above. Jesus said, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth. There's lots of problems with treasures down here, but that's not even my point this morning. He said to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, because he said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Lay, lay up those treasures that you're making the investment yourself. Invest in being a spiritually minded Christian. And may God save this whole congregation and your pastor and you individually from walking after the flesh. May God bless us to be a church that pleases him because we have our first love back and because we're hot and sold out for him. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.